With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 12, Episode 6, The Crime Scene. In this week's episode, we covered a whole lot, everything from the firefighters' response to the scene to the collection of evidence on the scene. I shared a ton of photos and a ton of documents on our website. And I have to say that, that I haven't been this excited about the engagement from our listening audience in a long time, like years. There has been so much that has been discovered by listeners and shared on the fan page, stuff that... The original attorneys didn't notice, that the family members didn't notice, that I haven't found. We are finding so much on a daily basis. You guys are doing great. I gave you a mission to go through those photos and find some stuff, and man, did you ever. So we've got some of that to talk about. I want to hear all about Zach and Janet's inputs on the episode. We're going to do all that right after a short break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood. Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, before we get started with all of the the questions and everything, just want to give you guys a little bit of housekeeping, a little bit of information. So, this week is CrimeCon. When you guys are hearing this today, I'll probably be in the middle of doing my presentation on the West Memphis 3 in Las Vegas. Super excited to meet a whole bunch of you there. We've got meetups planned. Stay tuned to social media to know when and where those things are going to be at. However, and you guys don't know this, this week, because it's CrimeCon, means it's a two and a half day work week. For me and Kelly, our new editor, who, by the way, I think has done an amazing job. Kelly, perfection. She's done. Yeah, she's done great. And it's a huge learning curve, too. There's a lot going on and she has done an excellent job. Uh, But we all have we have a really short week because we got to get to Vegas. So for this week's episode, last week, I mentioned that in our live show, the captain and I had a very lengthy (gasps) conversation about the John Bonet Ramsey case. Yes. And everybody was like, I want to hear that discussion. Yes, we were. So. For this week's main episode on Sunday is going to be that discussion. 
We've put that together for an episode for you guys. So that'll be published on Sunday morning. Kind of a bonus, but we just don't have time this week to go through the full episode process. And we got so much going on, I don't want to rush it. Honestly, this gives me a little extra time to absorb all of the amazing work that our listeners have done on this last episode that you did. I need that extra week because people have blown my mind with their questions. You're going to talk a little bit more about all of the stuff on the Facebook page that people have come up with. I downloaded all those photos. I looked at all of them. I got to be honest with you. I I just don't have the detective eyes that that so many members of the Truth and Justice Army have because I definitely was like, I know people are seeing stuff in these and I'm not there yet. I'm just not there yet. So I'm so impressed. I, I'll tell you what. I mentioned this in the Patreon feed before we did this, before we came on the air. But I'm so excited about the engagement that we've had. Like this is this is at home sleuthing, outsiders getting it done yes. like I haven't seen in years we had so much. So just, just real quick, I have a couple notes here uh, because these are things that weren't covered in the episode. I'll be breaking down much further when we get to um, uh, the further episodes. Uh, but for one, don't know who Chuck is. One listener found uh, in one of the photos of the cars a vehicle registration zoomed in and found Chuck's full name on it and that he was a co-owner of the vehicle oh my gosh. with Tiffany. Her, uh, uh, Becky's sister. Amazing. So now we know who Chuck is, thanks to that. And at the same time, I get messages from one of our document organization team that says, hey, way out in 2016, where you haven't gotten into the files yet, they interviewed Chuck, and here's his name. So that's all listener interaction. Wow. Uh, tons of people had comments about, I asked about the shoes and the pumps and what people would wear. Tons of comments. The overwhelming consensus is no pumps. No one would wear those pumps. No pumps. No, no way. No how. No. Not only would they not wear them because they're not comfortable, they would. They have to be non-slip. There's just a lot of reasons why people who have worked in the industry said no way. The black kind of skater shoes with the pink laces. Yeah. Mixed mixed Mix. reviews about that. Where people have said depends on you know if you have a, a night shift manager that's maybe a little lenient. Sure. They might not care. They might let them get away with it. Did have uh, Vanessa Atancio, I apologize, Atanasio, I think, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, worked as a manager at a Denny's nice. around this time and said, no way, they were, the corporate was very strict about, mm. they had to be black, they had to be leather, they had to be non-slip, so they wouldn't have let that slide. Hmm. But again, you had some people saying, well, I was a server, and sometimes the, ma- the manager, especially at night, would be like, oh, it's okay. But so there's some some food for thought. Good to know. Uh, I do want to say we had a tons of questions about forensics that are great questions we're going to get into later. One of the best catches that's not covered in any of the questions today, uh, Amanda Mowry caught when I talked about the red truck all the way back in episode two or three at the very end of the interview with Javier, it, literally as it's fading Who's out. the red truck? Yeah. Amanda. Says to Javier. Who's driving this little red truck? Oh, my gosh. And he says, oh, that's him, who was Nick Coraline, who lived in the Pinion area, who was there with him at the crime scene that morning. More on that later. Yeah, we really need to discuss that. because I definitely had questions about the red truck. I mean, and the behavior of the red truck. Yeah. It was just like, holy shit. Like, what a great catch. And then with the footprints in the, the, you know, I had said, and I was reading directly from the report. None of the prints out there were belonged to Becky. Somebody found somewhere some it was a news article mm. from the time of the trial 
that said an FBI analyst testified that there was a print that matched – there was the same brand, Globe Shoes. Got it. As Becky's out at the crime scene. Great. Which brought us – so then it got me digging in further. We found the actual um, FBI database that was was found or that was used for the footprint. Then other listeners are like, yeah, but that might be the same brand as hers. But look, they're not the same. More, I'm not saying that we've got more work to do on that later, but just know that, that it looks like maybe there was one footprint of hers out at the crime scene, all found by listeners. There's just so much going on. So I I want to address those things, tell you how awesome that I think it is that you guys are doing this great work. And also that that none of this is going by the wayside. When I get back from CrimeCon, everything settles down. We're going to be digging deeply into all of that stuff. There were some catches with the pen, which are covered in some questions, just all kinds of cool stuff. So. With that being said, real briefly, because I know I've already rambled on quite a bit, what are you, what were your guys' thoughts on the episode? Well, I think starting off, you know, you broke down the the timeline for the dispatch, mm-hmm. and and I, I mean, I know that you had talked about that there was some communicate, there could be some communication breakdown, but I think right now we have to believe the dispatch log, right? I mean, that's that's the only official record we have. Like, I know the yeah. captain came out and said this is when calls came in, but I mean, can we really go outside of that? I am very confident that he's accurate in what he said. Maybe not with the times. Okay. But with that being said, because we just don't have a solid record of times, I think we kind of got to work. I, think, I agree with you. We kind of got to work off of it. But, yeah, and we'll t- I know there are some questions about this. We'll dig into it a little bit more. But there are reasons why, which I'll explain. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that you, there's a lot of – hinting in this episode that I know we're going to get to, but it is very tantalizing, Bob, when you say, I need you to remember this because it's going to become very important in a future episode. That yeah. is like catnip for all the listeners. And so all of us are like, well, why don't you just tell us right now? Uh, because I would like to know why that needs to be important. And part of that is keep in mind, like, remember, this is a real time. And I know there's people out there that will like, give me shit for this. Like, oh, you haven't read the whole case file. The entire intent of this show is that it is in real time, that I'm presenting, I'm investigating it, reporting it as I'm investigating it and getting feedback from you guys along the way. Perfect example is Chuck. I didn't know Chuck ever got interviewed because I read the initial investigation. I hadn't read what was being done in 2016 yet because we're not there yet. But so many of you are just finding so many things. I'm super excited. If if you got some thoughts, Janet, you want to share or we can just get right into the questions. I mean, I think I have some questions, but I think we can maybe work them in if they don't get covered by um, Zap or the, the, the ones that we already have. There's stuff, of course, cropping up in YouTube as well. Okay. But I think we should just dive in here because we can jump into everything Kind of in the, I like to do, you know, I like to do it where it's like, okay, now we're going to talk about the fire, which, by the way, there's a lot of questions about the fire, but you did also say you're going to be breaking down the arson investigation further in a future right. episode. Is that right? So, yeah, there's a whole huge arson investigative report that we'll do an episode on. Okay. So, yeah, we'll get into all that stuff later. So, while you're saying that, I do have a question for you that I know you can't answer right now, but I want to put it out there so that you can keep this in mind. Plant that seed. In the episode, you talked about. If someone had the knowledge that they couldn't respond in time and that Uh there's no way that 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 house could be put out or if it's just dumb luck. I think one of the things you may need to look into is if there are any other fires in that area in the previous years where somebody would have known that. Because Mm -hmm. I don't feel like just living there, you would have known that. I feel like there has to be a reason you would know that. Or it's just totally dumb luck. So I think if you could find out if there are any fires within the past few years, whatever it may be, to see 
if they know that their response time is bad. That's a good not. point. I will mm-hmm. look into that because that was it was it jumped out at me as I was thinking as a fire officer and how I would respond. It just occurred to me is like you can't people have to understand fire growth and how it moves and how it grows and 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 how long it takes for a house to flash over, become fully involved to the point where you can't stop it anymore. Plus the water issues. And it was, it was, as I was working through that, I'm like, that's, it's impossible. Right. It's literally impossible. Any, any house fire, by the time somebody notices it, it's way too late. So anyway, well, yeah. So I'll, I'll look into that more, that more later. And, but it was definitely someone's like, man, it could just be dumb luck, but it also could be somebody with that knowledge. I mean, I think people, if somebody, my, my guess would be, and I have zero expertise on this, but you said that and I thought, well, plenty of people start fires hoping that it will burn through evidence, whether or not they have any idea if it will, the fire will be put out. That's just an M.O. You just hope. Your hope. I mean, I would assume that you're hoping right. without yeah, knowing. That's what I would think as well. Yeah. What's interesting is that, the, and again, this is all in the in the arson report, so we'll get, dig into it later. But what, what, what caught my attention was the points of origin where the poor patterns were. They weren't. It, it's not like they poured gas on the bodies and lit them on fire. They poured gas in very strategic places okay. in the house See, where it would spread quickly. This is important for us to know. Yeah. So it's it's it almost seems to me like they were pretty familiar with, I can start the fire here and then the whole house will come down. As opposed to just lighting the bodies on fire, I'm going to destroy all the evidence and take the whole house down. So again, okay. could be you better dumb save, luck. You better we'll save all of that. All of that, because there's some more breadcrumbs that you just dropped that now we're desperate for that arson investigation episode. Right. Maybe we might even tuck we might even tuck some of those questions into once we have the arson investigation, because there are so many questions about the fire. Um, My thought was, wow, it would be really scary for me to continue living there now, knowing that my neighbor's house couldn't be saved. But I just Mm -hmm. thought to myself, like, oh, boy, that's so scary. I can't imagine Tim and Araceli going like, well. I hope our house never catches on fire because it's now basically been proven that there's nothing anyone could do in time. That's very scary. But with that being said, as you're hearing this, you know, we're recording Wednesday. Last night here in town, a house burnt down was completely, I mean, was not being able to be saved. It was in the middle of town. There you go. My experience is, though, like just because they didn't save this house doesn't necessarily mean that the neighbors would, if they don't understand the science behind it, I don't know that people would see that and be like, oh. Well, that means that if my house catches fire, it won't be able to be saved. Hmm. I don't think I don't think people necessarily make that connection. They're like, Got this it. house wasn't able to be saved, but we don't know how long Got the fire started. We don't know these different circumstances. People generally think firefighters are like the opposite of cops. Like cops get scrutinized for everything they do. Firefighters, I mean, I've been to fires where the incident commander completely shit the bed hmm. and probably burned a house down that could Oof. have been saved by making bad strategic decisions. Okay. And the and the homeowners will be in the newspaper the next day going, we just really appreciate the fire department for showing up and doing such a great job and they work so hard. And it's like, and of course we would never say that, but I'm like, no, no, you could have still had your house if the idiot didn't send somebody here when they should have went there. Good to know. Yeah, just a little fun fact. But let's get into these questions. Okay, great. So Sarah has asked... Just kind of starting at the beginning of the episode, does it matter in terms of who called the firehouse on the landline? Is that something that we would need to know? Because she wants to know, you know, would it help to narrow down who could have made the landline call to help with the timeline? Does does that feel pertinent? Or I think that- it would help with the timeline because the way you would get that information would be through phone records. Someone asked about phone records, mm-hmm. but they didn't. 
from what I've seen, they didn't pull phone records to try to figure that out. I mean, keep in mind the fire the the fire crew saw the flames from Highway 74, and I and, and I saw somebody. It came in after we had already made the outline for this episode, but somebody was like, "Well, I wonder if Tim Summerlee's memory's a little off because he said the fire seemed like it was in its early stages, but they said they could see it all the way from Highway 74." Hmm. So maybe he was wrong that it had grown more since then, but that's not necessarily the case. And and that was kind of the point I was making was that's how dark it is up there. And remember, the neighborhood slowly goes uphill. So when you're on 74, you're looking up this hill and then it wouldn't, you know, even if you have, I'm going to give something that I get. So like, imagine I'm looking right now at a door. Uh, So imagine a flame coming out of a window, the size of a door, you know, maybe six foot by three foot or whatever. It's going to make a glow, and when you have an area with no street lights, no light pollution, it's pitch black, there's not even a moon in the sky, you're going to be able to see that from a long, long ways away. Got it. Well, and I, I think on, on memory with, with Tim, you, you already kind of see that fading on his side because it, that could be right, that, that he misremembered, but he's also said in the interview that He's like, oh, there was like a mannequin or something in the wheelbarrow. But now we know, I mean, ba- even in this, he said that Tim told the driver there was a body in the wheelbarrow. And this has been uh-huh. multiple times that they have said there is a body in the wheelbarrow, not yeah. a mannequin, not where he uses the word mannequin later. So memories tend to change. Yeah, but I don't think that, I mean, the way I took that from him was that it looked like a mannequin. And I'm sure he probably said something the along time, the lines maybe, of, yeah. because some of these these memories, they're like, they're there's sensory type memories, things that you're seeing, hearing, smelling, uh, that he's, that he's sharing. So like when he walked me through, literally walked me into the bedroom where he was standing, when he saw it, those types of things generally tend to stick, stick with you. Like, and as far as like the amount of flames that he saw, you know, he was, it was enough that he could, we know he called nine one one. We knew he drove up there. So it was, you know, it, it seems reasonable to believe that he saw what he saw and the way he described where the fire was at is consistent with the actual fire damage. The way he thought the house was laid out is consistent the way it is laid out. So some of that stuff, I think, is definitely memories fade. And he was clear to say certain areas where he wasn't positive. But I think it's – and again, him saying the fire seemed in its early stages doesn't necessarily mean that – You know, what does that mean to him compared That's to what right. it might mean to you or me? But this, But that actually does just – because this came up for me again as I was listening to the episode – you fully accept that that garage door was open, yes? Because that's his memory as well, right? All we have is his one memory saying that the garage door was open. I know that's been such a mystery. I just wanted to check in on I that. Have a, I have a real hard time getting away from it because this is not like something that came up years later. He and Araceli had a discussion about that day because when she walked up, the garage door was closed. And she said, I thought you said it was open. Like he had just told her. It was open. And the th- the big thing that got me is when I walked to the crime scene with him and he stood where he was standing and he was looking where he was looking and he saw that the foundation was flat with the ground. Right. He's like, well, man, maybe my memory is off. I remember looking through the open garage door, through all the stuff in the garage. And the truck and was seeing... on blocks right in the driveway, right? Like in front yeah, of yeah. the garage door. Okay. Yep. Yeah, well, it was to the side of the garage door. Okay. Okay. He, he, said, I, he said, but maybe my memory is off. Because I remember seeing like a set of stairs and I remember the door being elevated, like the door into the house, like, not, like you're right, in the garage right. and then the actual door into the house being elevated. And you could see as we're standing there, the foundation was flush with the ground. So he's like, maybe I am off. But when you go back and look at the photos, 
the foundation was low to the ground, but the floor was built up three feet to where the actual floor was. So it's it's hard to like that's a weird detail. No, you're right. To remember, and there were stairs in the garage. Yeah, you know there there were stairs that he could see. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he'd been there before or something like that. There was no, he'd never been there. Well, there you go. Yeah, Yeah. great. All right. So it's it's hard for me to get away from that. Mystery continues. Mystery continues. I want to add to that a little bit though. Something that just occurred to me, and I don't see evidence of it, but something to think about is you had fire burning in the attic of the garage, and that's why I was upset that 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 Captain Williams didn't remember about the door being open or closed. Because one thing that you'll do in an instance like that is you will get under it with what we call a pike pole. It's a big pole with a hook on it and pull ceiling down so that you have a better, so you can shoot water up into an area that's on fire. And what occurred to me was if the door was open, it would be covering the ceiling. Hmm. And so it could have been a, str- uh, a tactic that was used that the firefighters might have said, well, let's close the door, cut a hole in it. Oh. So that we can then get to the ceiling with our pike poles and pull the ceiling down. Because huh. the ceiling is pulled down. I don't know if it collapsed down or if they pulled it down. Hmm. Uh, but when I when I saw that, I thought, oh, maybe that's what happened. Maybe a firefighter closed it, cut the big hole in it so that they could pull ceiling, which is a common thing that we do. It's one of the very common thing that we do. Um, so then that's why I was really hoping that, that Captain Williams would remember that. But he just said, I don't remember if it was open or closed. Because as the scene progresses, you build out an incident command structure where it's not just one person calling all the shots. Well, there is one person. Likely it wouldn't have been him. A, a battalion chief or somebody would have come in and taken command from him at some point. Yeah. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wow, okay. Uh, Sarah uh, also asks, would the firehouse be required to notify the police that there was a fire in progress? Uh, would the police be then dispatched at the same time? Still, I think, trying to tease apart who arrived first and how far in advance. Obviously, the pen, that's very important with respect to the pen and the pen being noticed, all that kind of stuff. Right. As far as the, the dispatch, so it, what, I was, what I said I wanted to break down a little bit here is there's a standard operating procedure for how fires are dispatched. Firefighters, especially guys that have been around for a long time, especially in that era, there was this like in the mid nineties, there was this big shift of progression and education and stuff like that. So it was like, there was like the old school, they would call themselves traditional guys that are like, you know, fuck it. We kick down doors and put fires out, squirt water on it. And that's what we do. And then in these like, in like mid nineties to early two thousands, all of a sudden, we started learning more and more about building construction and about fire behavior and strategies and tactics. And safety became a huge thing. Safety was never like it was pretty much accepted all the way up until the late 90s that if you're a firefighter, you go into a fire, there's a good chance you're going to die. 
And then there came this shift where it was like, you know what? We need to stop killing firefighters to save buildings. Like if a firefighter dies trying to save a human, that's that's acceptable. If a firefighter dies trying to save a building, that's not acceptable. And and so he strikes me as one of these the traditional guys. And so you go back to you got a time when people just called the fire station directly and they went. And these are little things that you would never think of, but it's weird where. Then, okay, well, we have a new dispatch system, and now the county's going to dispatch you. And they, and they were, I mean, I, I went through this. I lived through this time when people are like, well, actually, I don't want some, some stupid-ass dispatcher that doesn't know anything about fire taking the call. This is dumb. I don't like this. And so even though there was procedures for how to notify dispatch, I, I literally, as I'm reading him say, the calls came in. He told the guys, hang up the phone. Let's go. I'm like, oh, yeah. That's Mike or that's Gary, some of the guys that I worked with when I was young and first started. I'm like, that would be them. They would say, you know, in 2000, you know, I started the fire department in 2001, uh, late 2000, early 2001. I could totally see them being like, let's just go and then not doing what they're supposed to do and just getting on the way to the fire. So when, when he's talking about changing frequencies, typically you'll have a dispatch frequency where they'll put the tones out and tell you what's going on and where to go. And then once you get in route, They'll, they'll, they'll assign you, go to fire ground two, which is a radio channel. That's your assigned channel. That's where your operations are. So it doesn't create a bunch of traffic on the dispatch channel. And that's what he meant when he said, we pulled out, we changed channels. So I wouldn't have heard him dispatch us. The question is, did he, what he should have done in that instance is get on the radio and say, dispatch from engine 30. We got a call for a structure fire at this address. We're in route now. And then wait for confirmation. My guess is, if his memory is correct, what he did was go, engine 30 is en route to a structure fire in Alpine and never confirmed if they heard him or not and switched the channel, which is a common problem. There's always this beef between dispatch and fire responders because from our end, matter of fact, I just this week on True Crime Binge, I interviewed a dispatcher who, who runs the uh, Music City 911 podcast, and we talked about this. Where in our minds, we're going to the, like, why the hell aren't they listening to me? Why aren't they answering me? I don't have time for this bullshit, and I'm just going to go put the fire out. Meanwhile, they're over there answering 400 calls at once. So long story short, there's a, there are plenty of scenarios where things went down just like he said they went down, and no one knew what the other, the other one was doing until he got to the scene when it's very important that that gets documented, and he got on the radio and said, dispatch from Engine 30, yes, I'm on the scene of the structure fire, and it gets notified. And that's why he said... He agrees with that time, probably because there was a back and forth confirmation that that's what happened. Got it. Now, with him being, I mean, we, we think it's about 32 minutes, correct? Is about the, the time frame-ish? Ba- based on, that's not, I'm, try, I'm not doing the math in my head right now, but based on the time he said that the landline calls came in, yeah. Okay. And, I mean, as a as a firefighter, would you expect the house to be pretty inflamed by that point? Pretty engulfed in flames oh, yeah. by that point. I, mean, I would assume that too, but I'm obviously I'm a layman. I don't know anything. Oh yeah. But I mean, I feel like by 30 minutes, that's you're it's dangerous. Like you're that house is gone. Yeah. Or it's it's on its way to being completely lost. Yeah, that's a loser. When you get there, you're 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 saving a basement at that point. 
Yeah, that's a question that Christy has in the YouTube chat is, you know, how long do you think it would have taken for the house to become fully engulfed enough for the neighbors around to notice, for example, like the speed of all of that. But hopefully we'll talk about that in the arson. Investigation yeah, we'll save that for for uh, great question, another Christy. episode after the arson investigation because we got so much other stuff to yeah, get to. Great. Yeah. Kristen um, had had a great question um, in the feedback about, you know, wondering why that time matters. I think we're going to get further into that in future episodes. I know that was a big question for me, mm-hmm. too. And then Rena, just to kind of button up the report side of things wants to know, you know, what is the standard operating procedure in terms of getting that documentation and in terms of filing that report? She noticed that um, it looks like the the report wasn't written for three and a half months. Is that normal? Is that bad? Again, you got to go back to the time, right? So my chief and then when I was the chief had standard operating procedures that said that you will complete all fire reports before your shift's over. So before you usually work 24-hour shifts. So before you leave in the morning, your reports are inputted into the Enfer system, which is a computer system. Even at that, when it was strict, there were still times where like you're fighting a fire all night and you're like, all right, I'm just I'll do it. You know, I got a day, I, I'm I'm taking the day off. I'll when I come back tomorrow or the next day, I'll I'll go ahead and, and, and input it into the system. It was not uncommon at all. There used to be constantly one of the guys' names I just mentioned that was always in trouble because it, when you see that the, that's the day they wrote the report, you're thinking that that's the day he sat down and said, what happened that day? And he typed it in the computer. That's not what happens. You have a, a clipboard with reporting paperwork with you, and you're handwriting all of this information when you're on the scene. I guarantee you everything got written down while he was on the scene. And then what happens is, with, or what, especially back then, is they get back and he's like, all right, I'm exhausted. I'll do this report later. And they set it down and then a bunch of other ones pile up on top of it. And in my case, it would be, I mean, I never did this, but because I was the young new guy, right? The new progressive guy, but the older guys, they would, those would, they would pile up until the chief was like, I'm going to write you up if you don't go do your reports. And then one day, a month later, somebody's sitting down, entering a hundred reports into the computer system, trying to catch everything up. So the fact that it took three and a half months to to do the report didn't surprise me at all. And I also know how it works. It's not that, that he thought up all the information in the report from memory three and a half months later. It would all be written down as a narrative on his uh, handwritten on the night of the scene. One of the things that I did to try to dispel some of that is I actually converted our reporting paperwork into PDF documents and put uh, iPads on all the trucks. So they at least typed it to where it would be easily readable and stuff for later. Well, it's interesting you're saying all this. And, and you know, we have definitely been very hard on police officers and detectives who have mm-hmm. filed paperwork late. So it's it, that's what it's making me think of is, you know, or, or because we pick apart police reports, right, and say, right. well, this was written six months later. How do we know that this is right? And how do we know if the note taking was adequate enough for them to remember correctly? So that right. I think tying into that is kind of interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and and it's good you mentioned that because you're right because it probably does. I don't know from the police side, but I'm guessing it was probably, you know, I've, I've probably have been overly harsh for some of that with some of that because it probably was a lot of the same thing. Usually, though, when that comes up for me, it's because they wrote the report six months later and what they wrote in the report isn't one what what this dude said happened. Right. You know, and or, like ma- or sometimes you there. see the notes and you can compare and say, well, wait a minute, that's not in the notes. Right. You wrote report. this in your handwritten note and you wrote something different in yeah. your final report. I was just playing a little pinch of devil's advocate there. Let's talk about the truck 
for a second. We we already talked about a little bit that Amanda's great uh, observation. Veronica asks, did they ever find out who the truck belongs to? Was it a suspect? Was it someone in the neighborhood? Was it one of the family vehicles? Um, and then I'd love to hear your perspective on the behavior of a person who, as he said in his report, like pushed himself up so that he could look at the guys in the fire truck, which to me yeah. seems like pretty bold behavior if you're trying to avoid being noticed, as does playing chicken. If you have anything to do yeah. with the fire, that's bold series of moves to be very memorable for a thing you may have done. It's weird, too, because he describes him as he was looking right at me, but he was the officer. He was the captain, which means he was sitting in the passenger seat. He wasn't driving the truck. So he wasn't on the same side of the truck. So it was the whole like pushing up and looking. I don't know. Maybe that happened. I, I just found that to be odd because he's not the driver could be looking right down into the into the truck. But the officer in the officer's seat, which is the passenger seat, is there's a lot of truck there between you. So I don't, I don't know about all that. Uh, as far as did they discover who the truck belonged to? We'll get into that all in detail as far as their investigation and where they looked into that. And when we get into suspects, I don't want to get hung too much up on that now. I'll tell you that okay. no, there was never positively, they never identified whose truck that it actually was. Right. I mean, because it seems like it has significance in that it was part of the trial. Um, and I, it's hard to tell if it was beyond above and beyond this is what delayed us and this is why the timeline is what it is and that's why the truck matters or that there's some other reason that we just don't know about yet that it was covered well, so thoroughly. In well, the, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. And I think I've mentioned this before. You know, the, the, the judge handcuffed the defense horribly right. in this case because so you you've, you would the, the significance would be like here's somebody in this quiet neighborhood at 10 o'clock at night on these treacherous roads driving like a bat out of hell in the opposite direction of the fire while the fire trucks are responding to the fire. But by the way, you're not allowed to even suggest any third party culpability. I mean, you can't even suggest anyone other than the two people on trial are suspects. So there, there was significance with it, but it died right there because they couldn't. So even if they say, say let's, for example, let's say, they determined that truck belonged to Nick Coraline. They didn't, but let's just say they did. Mm -hmm. The defense wouldn't be allowed to point that out to the jury that he was Nick Coraline and the, mm -hmm. that's Javier's friend and Javier was there, you know, blah, 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 blah. None of that was allowed. Well, I mean, there's two things that come to mind with that. First is, is the truck. Um, they said, they said it's a red truck with a white bed. That, right. that stands out to me. That feels like. That's not just saying it's a red truck. There's there's red trucks all over the place, but a red truck with the white band, a red truck with the white bed stands out to me. That like seems like something you could find. Yeah, great. But point. the other part where you where you just talked about like the defense not being able to bring that up, I feel like you could shoot that down pretty easy because it was. I mean, I get that it's in the vicinity of the fire, but it's also far enough away from the fire that it could just be happenstance that somebody was driving like an asshole through there. It's possible, but if they had and. Well, we'll get into it all later. We'll explain it all that later. My, yeah, um, it would be interesting to have that in context of really getting a that strong sense of what the community size was. Because I, I was when you the way you said it, it did make me think like, well, it's true. Like it may be a far distance away, but that doesn't necessarily allow for that many more houses, businesses, et cetera, et cetera, because it seems like such an isolated community. But. I should count. I should get. I, I shouldn't even give a number. I should get a. But, but I, I, I would estimate, and I will count at some point. I would estimate between the back of the neighborhood where the fire, where the, the, the crime scene was and where this happened, the, the area the truck was coming from, 
maybe 20 houses. Good to know. 30 at best. Good to know. Not hard to find. And we found out, thanks to um, Amanda, that uh, we know there was one person in that neighborhood that had a small red truck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, I just want to quickly acknowledge, Jim, you've got a, a great comment about the um, Mr. Summerley's, Mr. Summerley's statement and what he could see and not see. And um, we've got some really good feedback from other folks uh, in the notes, but it is all very much tied to, I think, the arson investigation. Jamie Rice from the Murderish podcast has some really good comments about the damage of the fire, the intention of the fire. Um, Aaron asks if we can get those details on the points of origin, accelerant. And um, Sarah's asking some great questions about timing from between Becky's body and the house and stuff like that. Could we put a pin in those and save those for the follow up after the arson piece? Because I those seem like they are of a of a of a piece. Yeah, I just want to let's put a pin in those. And Jim, I took a screenshot of your comment, so I'm going to try to remember that, and maybe we can plug that back in and see if those questions still remain okay. after the the arson thing. Melissa says it seems that the police intentionally did a terrible job at the scene and investigating. If you can call it that, is there any feeling that someone in the police department was involved? I would say. It's not fair to say that they were intentionally doing a bad job. I, I, I just not say it's not the case. I don't get that feeling so far anyway uh, in the initial um, gathering of evidence and stuff that night. I don't think they did a very good job, you know, for as I you kind of heard my outrage. But, you know, when, when Becky's body is burning in a wheelbarrow 20 feet away, 30 feet away from her car and they grab three things out of her car and just leave it. And then another thing a listener found was a was a later interview with um, Becky's dad, Ron, uh, that he'd done a press conference at one point and said, apparently, and we'll get into all this later, but they found a ring in the car that that belonged to Javier. It was, it was it looked almost like a wedding band it said Javier on the outside and inside. It said, like, with love, Bonnie, which is, you know, Javier's dad's name is Javier. Hmm. His mom's name is Bonnie. Um, that was something that wasn't even noted. Uh, by the police, they didn't t- check for any of her clothes. They th- even the journal. I've asked our document organization team, who's been through all the documents. You know, is there anywhere where they show us what's in that journal? And it doesn't seem like there is. Wow. Okay. Like, like how much could be drawn for victimology out of that? So there, I'm frustrated for sure. But no, I don't think that they were like intentionally doing a bad job. At least now, and like I said, they they didn't have a lot to work with. I'm sure that moment on the scene. There's a couple things going on. The, the the main crime scene is a pile of rubble. So they got little to nothing to work with there. I think they got tunnel vision on the wheelbarrow tracks because they're like, well, but lucky for us, her body's in a wheelbarrow and the tracks show us right where the wheelbarrow came from. And we've got footprints and we find this business card 20 yards away from where all that stops. So... We got it. I mean, that, this seems to be the area to focus on. So we they focus on that, but then it's like they had blinders on. They never, like I said, my big thing is it would be super easy back then to know, did she run from the back door? Right. It's pretty, I mean, you there, there's a dirt path right there. We have no indication that they look for that. Collecting the evidence from the car. I mean, they didn't even collect the wheelbarrow. They they cut the handles yeah, off the wheelbarrow. Yeah, we got some questions about that. We definitely got and some they questions left about all that. Yeah, there, there's remnants and there's stuff in the. It's like for all we know, there's a bullet in. I don't know what was in there. Like the fact that they didn't just collect it is is frustrating. So I, I'm not thrilled with the job they did. 
I haven't seen indications that they were intentionally doing a bad job. As far as could a law enforcement officer be involved, anybody could be involved at this point. I don't know. Just want to shout out you guys who are talking about the my whole question about pushing up or ducking or like what you would do to manipulate how much or how little of the firefighters you see. And I, I'm loving these comments in the YouTube. But I also wanted to let's see wanted to bring in. Oh, yeah. I, what, when everything you were saying made me think of that something I was listening to recently when it that famous quote about um, don't write off as malfeasance what you can excuse as stupidity like there was just some that that's the, yeah. the thing that sort of gets said like don't assume somebody is doing something on purpose when they might just be not good at their jobs right and i was like oh yeah i gotta remember that because i'm i get so focused on thinking like someone was doing this on purpose because they wanted to hide the fact that something else happened um and that's something you come up with over and over in, in seasons past no one no one would have there's no indication that anyone had the foresight to try to frame somebody or to try to protect somebody uh, i think that the the things that we're frustrated about in this crime scene were probably just mistakes and it kind of seems like i told you the reports are tough like they're all there's so many little reports there was too many people in charge there wasn't one person in charge that was directing and making sure everything got done it was like I'm going to take care of this and I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. And there was like Ramirez was like the main, but he was like investigating. And then there was like, uh, you know, and then Icart is, is following the wheelbarrow tracks. And then you've got somebody else is looking through the cars and then somebody else is photographing the cars. It's like there was, there there was too many people in charge and there was not somebody that was. So a lot of it could be that it could be that there was no, there was no single one of these detectives that like particularly did a bad job. It's just that there was no one central detective making sure everything got done. I think there might have been a lot of, oh, well, you know, no, I didn't. I assumed that the evidence collection guy got all the stuff from the back of her car. And they're like, no, you were doing the cars. He's like, but I wasn't collecting evidence. That wasn't my job. You know, mm. some of that stuff going on. Got it. A uh, lot of questions about the wheelbarrow, the tracks, and the pen. Uh, Rosalind says, is it a fact that the wheelbarrow tracks the detective trace were made that day during the crime or could those tracks and the placement of the wheelbarrow have happened days before the crime and are unrelated? It's it's impossible to know. I mean, it wasn't the weather was clear for a couple of days before before the crime. There wasn't really any wind. There was a, there was a big rainstorm. Uh, five, I'll go back and look, but it was like five or six days before. So like, there's kind of like a, a, a cutoff somewhere, mm -hmm. but like. I think that those if those tracks were put there anytime, say Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that they would still be there. Hmm. So there's no there's no way to really know. So it's impossible to know. In other words, it is possible that those tracks could have been there before. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. they could have been there. And and there's but then there's the the weird like why is there only a set of wheelbarrow just the wheelbarrow track coming back? That really jumped out at me. The the footprint thing is just baffling. I don't even have a, a, a way to explain that. But if the wheelbarrow was already there for a few days, then the couldn't it have been that the wheelbarrow had been moved before the rainstorm? The rain washed all the things. I mean, you've said that in right. the episode, I think. It, could, it just could have been back there for days and then been yeah. utilized for whatever reason. Yeah. So that part makes sense. I can come up with scenarios why. But, but we need to dig more into the shoe prints, and we will later. Because the way it was described in the report made it seem like the, the shoe prints all are following the wheelbarrow back to its final resting place. Like they're pushing it and walking next to it. I didn't see anything where they're talking about any shoes that were going prints that were going out to the wheelbarrow out right. to the point of, origin. so how do you even get to the, to where you would use it that night? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm yeah. just, yeah, I yeah, don't, I don't weird. get it. 
Yeah, but we have, you know, keep in mind, we have, so j- just listening to, we have a lot more to go with this stuff, but keep, just listen to Javier's one interview. And there's so many, much more that you're going to hear from him and everybody else. Okay. He said, you're probably going to find my footprints all over the place out there because I was there this weekend and we were walking around. Got it. And he was other friends. So there's like two, three people that were walking around in the back. It was, they said that they had smoked pot with her. With John, they had said that they walked back there and hung. There's other interviews. I don't remember what's been played and what hasn't, but where they, you know, it was, you know, the kids would go back there and just hang out. And there was like a couch and stuff back there in one spot where they would go like hang out and smoke weed back there. Hmm. So there's a lot of reasons why there would be footprints back there. But but because the wheelbarrow tracks lead to a body, that's why they become significant. Well, was that used when, I guess we'll get into it, but the idea that if she was killed in the desert, they took her body, the wheelbarrow was already there. They put her body in the wheelbarrow and then they push the wheelbarrow forward. There wouldn't be any tracks from the house to the wheelbarrow. And they could the prosecution could have used that against the defendants in saying like this happened. They found the wheelbarrow there and that's how they transported her body forward. I don't know if they were if they didn't use that. I guess that's not what their argument was. But yeah, I mean, they're, they 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 have to jump through some hoops to explain the whole thing. We'll Got just it. say that. Got it. Katie asks, why is the pen different in the two pictures on the website? This was another huge catch. And I don't know. Go look uh, if you haven't yet because I want some more opinions on this. And actually, you can go on the Facebook fan page where people have like put side by sides together or just go on the website and look. So we have the photo that was taken by Charlie DeHart, who is the arson investigator. It was taken at like three o'clock in the morning of the pen on the ground. And then, you know, we, we read the I read you the report where they go back three days later and they're like, hey, that pen's still there. And they're like, oh, goodness, we better collect the pen then. So they collect it, put it into evidence, and then they, like, put it on a piece of paper with a ruler and everything and take clear, uh, you know, evidence photos of it. And someone noted, and it's what it looks like to me. I've tried a million different ways. In the photo of the where it was, where it was put in evidence, there's the, a gold tip on the pen. Like, you'd screw on the end, kind of a con- like a cone shape at the end. Uh, just to finish it off and make it look nice, the end of the pen doesn't really serve a function. Uh-huh. But in the photo that was taken by DeHart at three in the morning, there's no gold tip on the end. It, what it looks Ooh. like is there's just the threads there that the gold tip would screw onto. Because hmm. if it were the other way around, you could maybe say the tip fell off. Oh, uh, it fell off. The tip appeared. What is right. That? It wasn't there originally, then it was there later. It's yeah. If you guys can't That's see wild. Janet holding doing the Macaulay Culkin right now with her hands on her <laughs> it face, it doesn't help that I already look like Macaulay Culkin, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but it's crazy. Now, wow. look, I, I, some people have said, "Well, I think it's shadows, or there's debris, or the picture's too fuzzy, and maybe." But I'm t- man, I've looked and looked and looked, and it's like you can see ground in places. So if you imagine, as we try to describe this in an audio format, but the pen that you know, the two walls that go straight. And then they both step in and then go up where the threads are. So it makes like a right angle. And then there's this this cap that kind of screws onto it. When it's on there, instead of that jagged in and up, it just is a, a smooth yep. transition. Mm-hmm. You can very clearly see to me where there is that, you know, that cut in and then cut up. And you can see the ground and see shadows where you shouldn't, shouldn't be able to see them. I don't know. And then there was somebody else caught. That on the in the photo, the evidence photo that was used as an exhibit at trial of the pen where the cap is on, the case number is written wrong on it. Yeah, that's that was something that Caroline pointed out. She she said that file is marked wrong and it's 
doesn't help yeah. us with the sort of confusion and suspicion about the pen. So if the pen, if everybody that sees this is right, and if the pen that was collected as evidence and tested for DNA and fingerprints and sw- and, and used at trial, if that pen did have the tip and it didn't have the tip before, then jumping back to that previous question, yeah, that seems like that was intentional. Something hanky there. Like somebody swapped the pen out or something. Oof, okay. Uh, because like you, like you said, it would make sense if the cap was there and then it was gone later, like it fell off. But it didn't, it didn't get screwed on later. That would be a different pen. Somebody yeah. swapped out a different pen if that happened. But again, That's I want wild. your guys' opinion. Go look at the photos. Yeah. And see what you think. So many great questions happening in the YouTube chat, everybody. It's so hard to, to track everything. Questions about uh, Clayton asked, could the wheelbarrow have been used by Becky as a shield initially, which is something that had never occurred to me. Great thinking. Just thinking outside the box. I'm super impressed. I would uh, say no. And I say that because the track from the back mm-hmm. leads right up to where the wheel stopped, which means... You know, it wasn't like picked up and moved around the wheelbarrow. So like either, as the state presumes, her body was put in the wheelbarrow from out in the back of the desert and then rolled up to that point and stopped and burned. Or there was, she fled, which is what I tend to lean towards more right now for a whole number of reasons, that she probably fled from the house, got caught and killed, and the wheelbarrow was right there. Mm -hmm. And so they put her in it to light her on fire. But either way, that wheelbarrow didn't get moved around during any of this. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Speaking of that wheelbarrow, you mentioned it before, cutting the handles off. Uh, Ashley says the green pen was found next to the wheelbarrow. Does wheelbarrow does that mean the wheelbarrow wasn't taken into evidence that night? It must have been at some point because you said it was tested for accelerant. So talk to us about that wheelbarrow. It, the wheelbarrow wasn't tested for accelerants. They swabbed it with they swabbed the contents of it, and then they put like a gauze pad in the body bag with Becky, and then left it in there for a day or whatever, and then went and pulled that back out and tested it, hoping like it would absorb some accelerant. And then the test results came back. They're, they're, it's complicated. I don't even know that I really understand it, but they were inconclusive. It, it didn't just say there's no accelerant. It's like there's indicators there that there could have been accelerants, but there's some complicating factors that make them not be able to say 100% sure that there were accelerants in there. But no, the wheelbarrow wasn't collected. It was left. They cut the handles off. And I know there's a ton. Of, I'll say this. There's a ton of questions. Everybody wants to know about all these forensics. Were there fingerprints? Were there, we're going to get into all of that stuff. There's, okay. there's, as I mentioned, the, the business card was the linchpin of the state's case. Ultimately, they end up, they end up saying that, that, um, that one of our defendants fingerprint and DNA is on that card. So that's, you know, because if, if you're at this point thinking like, how in the hell ever did they get to those guys? That was it. It was the business card that was out in the middle of the desert. Okay. But there's a whole story behind that too. We'll get to, okay. um, 
But I'll also tell you that they found DNA on her ankles and the wheelbarrow handles that didn't belong to any of the victims or the defendants. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, that's a good teaser. Um, going back to the footprints again, the shoe prints, and there's some some great uh, chatter about that in the YouTube chat as well. Lynn asks, any chance of an interview with the FBI expert on shoe prints, um, the identification of the various shoe prints, shoe sizes? There's a great question here about whether they could have even tested. Ashley said, would they've had shoes to test against Vicky and John's footprints? Great questions and so much stuff burned. No on that. I mean, there's nothing in the house for as far as to, to find any kind of shoes for them. Uh, as far as the FBI agent, I is something I would love to talk to him. I will tell you this. I intend to, um, and something I may we may tap into listeners for, one thing that, that I think needs to be done based on um, a discussion I had with one of the family members. Evidently, at some point, the FBI investigator said he absolutely could have said what size the shoe prints were. But he was never asked by the state. So I think that it would be either him or I, I know of a lab that does. They actually train FBI agents on footprint analysis. I think that it would be something even if we if we just fund it uh, and send what we have to uh, that lab and have them determine the size. Because that could be a big thing too. I mean, again, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But some people notice in the picture I posted when we got into the FBI investigation that there's very clearly a Vans footprint right next to the Globe footprint. Just very briefly, that was that Vans footprint was 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 used to connect Robert to the crime scene, not because he had a pair of Vans shoes that matched that print, because he had a pair of Vans shoes that weren't very much weren't that print. Like it's very obvious or different patterns. It's a completely different shoe, but he had a Vans shoe. Well, what we also what they could have done, according to this, from what I understand from this FBI agent, is they could have said what size that van print was, and then compare that to what size Robert wore. But it's you know these are always things I look at. It's like, is there a reason the state didn't do that? Right. And and why didn't they? Because they're desperate to find a way to connect them. If you can say that it was the same size, that sure would be helpful. Uh, but they didn't do that. But I think that's something that we should do. I mean, while we're on the shoe topic, I think it's very strange that the one shoe's missing. Like, and I think and that's huge. I think yeah, that the roll down it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, where the hell is that shoe? It makes perfect sense to me. It doesn't make any sense with the state's theory, as far as I'm concerned. Like, does is the sh- was the shoe in the house because they didn't find it in the field? Was the, the the did the killer take the shoe? I mean, that's that's a possibility in my head that for some reason it came off. It was laying there. They're like, shit, we can't leave this lay here. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but. I'm trying to fathom where that shoe went. The only the only thing that certainly that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. There are possibilities you can come up with, but the thing that makes the most sense to me, and again, this I didn't I didn't see this when I was looking at crime scene photos and diagrams. I I had to physically go out and walk to the scene, and I had marked out where the wheelbarrow was, and then I went to where the back door was, and I stepped out, and there's shit all over the place. But it was like, what are, when I moved some brush out of the way, and there's this path. I'm like. Oh, it makes perfect sense. If you're standing, that's why I always go to the crime scene. If you're standing at the back door and you run out of the back door to your right, which would be like along the side of the garage and stuff, there were like picnic tables and a barbecue bench, kind of a little patio area. There was a pine tree that almost touched the garage. You couldn't get through there. So it kind of, that goes out a little ways and there's that infinity car was parked right there. So if you go out the back door, the only place that you can really go is on this path. And if you look up the path, if you're just running away, boom, 
right exactly to where her body was found. It's a direct mm-hmm. straight line. The mar- if you look in the crime scene diagram where the detective drew the line where he measured from the back door to the body and said it was 69 feet, nine inches or whatever, that line he drew is a path. Wow. It's a clear path between there uh, where it was found. So for me, it's like, well, so for, forget that she's – let's just say her body was found there for a second. I'm not saying we write off the wheelbarrow, that we don't consider it, but considering all options – Let's assume for a minute that her body wasn't in a wheelbarrow and her body was found right there with one shoe on and with her sock rolled down around her foot. What would you think happened? Right. Would you think she got brought in from the desert? Right. Or would you think, oh, she narrowly escaped someone in the house who probably grabbed her ankle as she was trying to get out? Because let's, let's say we're spitballing here. We shouldn't even really be just, just spitballing an idea, right? So knowing what we know now about the crime scene, let's say someone does walk in the house and finds her mother right by the back door. If you walked in and found someone you loved by the back door laying on the ground dead, what would you probably do? What would be your first move? Well, you either go to the body or you, re- or you retreat. One of the two, I feel like. You go to the body or you retreat. You, so say you go to the body. How do you go to the body? Think about it, Jana. Like, just try to put yourself in that space. You're putting me. You're putting me in Vicky's shoes. Or are you putting me? in I'm Becky's putting you in Becky's shoes. Okay. So you. So so in this in this hypothetical scenario, she finds her mom. She walks in and her mom's on the ground, right? With her blood coming coming from her head. So yeah. if you were Becky in that situation, what do you think you would do? I doubt you would run further into the house. You would probably okay. run away. Right. Okay. You would run. I, I would probably you're first you would thing run I would further do further into the house. Nope. Uh, and there's no wrong answer. I was just curious because for me, the first thing I would do is probably drop to my knees oh, and course. see if they're okay. Of yeah. course. I thought you were asking me directionally, where would you go Mm-mm. if you had to go a direction? Of course you would drop down. Of course you would see what's happening and see if you could do anything and see if you could help and see what happened. Yeah, that would be, but to me, that reaction makes sense. And I don't know, people on, in the chat or people that are listening, you think if they're, I'm not trying to put this idea in your head. I just want to, like, for me, I can see myself like, oh my God, first thing I want to do is see if they're okay. Yes. So if you're down on the ground and then here comes the killer that was pouring gasoline around the back of the house mm-hmm. or the front of the house, mm-hmm. you, now what are you going to do? Now you're going to retreat. Right. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's trying to stop you from retreating and they grab your leg, like, like these are just things like I can see this. I can see this. And there's a, a million other scenarios. I'm not trying to say this is what happened. I'm not trying to say there's not other scenarios. But as far as like it not making sense, I can see this scenario happening in my mind. Someone right. to reach up, grabbing your ankle. The foot comes, the shoe comes off, top rolls down. She takes off running. I can guarantee you that if you did run out of the back door, the only place you would have to run was right towards where that wheelbarrow was at. Gotcha. Now, wouldn't there be a lot of disturbance between the back door and that wheelbarrow? There'd be footprints. I feel like there would be more than just footprints. If there's a struggle, if you're trying to get away, you're scrambling, the, the killer's chasing you. It's it's more than just a couple footprints or, or walking. I feel like there's more disturbance. There. It depends. If the, if, if the contact where the shoe comes off happens in the house, which I believe otherwise we'd have the shoe, you know, if the, if the shoe I think probably burned up in the house, then the disturbance happens. Once they hit the back door, you're just running and there's somebody running behind you. You know, the disturbance I think would be out by where the body's at. Cause obviously at some point they caught her mm-hmm. if that scenario was accurate. Gosh, sure would be nice to know if there were footprints between those two things. Wouldn't it? Wow. Um, okay. All right. Let's move on. Uh, couple of questions about uh, Becky. 
Bethany asks, so Becky was in the process of moving again. Where was she moving to? Or is this just an assumption by law enforcement because of the contents of her car? So it seems like we know from, which again, we're going to get into it later, but the 2016 interview with Chuck. Uh, and if you can, and also couple that with uh, Tiffany, her, her half-sisters, uh, an interview she did for a newspaper article. Uh, they both seem to confirm that she was thinking about moving back in with Chuck. And also, I want to point out another thing that was kind of caught by listeners. And I don't, I feel really stupid, to be honest with you, for not catching this. I did catch it, but I thought it was just a mistake. Um, we heard in Javier's interview where he said, oh, I met Becky when she was a junior and I was a sophomore. I was like, well, that doesn't make sense because they both just graduated. And I was kind of working under that that premise because she's 18 at this time. She's not she's not 19 yet. But as it turns out, she and maybe this was more obvious than I should. She actually graduated the year before that. She'd been out of school for a whole year. Um, somebody had pointed out that because her birthday was in October, so the way the school years worked in California, she got you know moved ahead of class or whatever. So that's just one thing to point out. She had moved in with Tiffany, lived with Chuck. So Tiffany, again, is Vicky's daughter from her first marriage. They got divorced when she was one year old. And when she was six, they got what she got with Ron. They were married to Ron for a while. Then there was the divorce that happened with Ron, which apparently was a pretty nasty divorce. Vicky starts dating Chuck. I don't know how long that went on. And then they break up, and then Vicky gets with John. Tiffany seems to have really formed a bond with Chuck and lived with Chuck in town. And and I think saw him as a father figure, and, and, to, and up till 2020 when he passed away, still really did. At some point, Becky moved out and lived with Tiffany and Chuck. That's where she spent the rest of the, you know, the through her the end of her high school years. She had only just recently, within the last year, moved back to live with John and Vicky. And in that newspaper article, Tiffany says that she was talking about moving back with Tiffany to go back into town. Now, I don't know. The, the cop says apparently she was planning to move. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's just because she had a bunch of stuff in her car. There's something in that journal that we don't know about. I don't know. Or if it's because maybe Tiffany told him that. I don't know. Yeah, I wondered if that's something in the notes. I can't remember now, but I, I think I created a false memory that you even said in his testimony that he said, like, I collected these notes that were also about her moving. That might actually even be in there. I don't know. It was it was really late at night because he talks about the that, notes. So. He talks about the notes that he gathered and what was written in this in this textbook and stuff. And I thought you said that he says something about like apparently you know she had all this bedding and there's reference to her moving in those notes. If somebody in the YouTube chat is tells me I'm not crazy or that I am, yeah, that was a question that Teresa had about Becky's graduation date and the fact that she did graduate from a high school that's you know something like a hundred miles away. She had graduated a full year before, essentially, is what we're, we we figured out. Claire has a quick question. Just for clarification, I think, clarification, please. I'm so sorry for that pun. Wow. The way you phrased it in the episode, you said something about Becky and Vicky and she's missing a shoe. I think the way you said it may have confused some people. Claire says, was Vicky also missing a shoe? So I think just the clarification on that. No, um, to be frank, Vicky was missing her legs. Right. Yeah, I think that was just I think it was just the way it was said. And it, there was a opportunity to actually mishear that. Um, so getting that clarification just in case. Thank you, Claire. Kristen says if Becky's shoe fell off during a struggle, could it have been thrown in the wheelbarrow and burned without it being recognized as the other shoe? No. No, it wouldn't have been able to. A few people asked that question on the fan page. And no, it just because 
it's an open space. The fire wouldn't be hot enough or long enough. You would have a pool. If if it, the fire burned hot enough and long enough to actually do serious damage to the shoe, the rubber sole would still, you know, there'd still be rubber in the, which would be like stuck to her and everything that would be in there. And the shoe was leather and le- leather would hold up through fire. It would, you know, fire to put it in perspective, fire gloves are made of leather. Fire boots are made of leather. Right. Um, in order to completely destroy leather, it would be like, 2000 degrees our fire gloves were rated for like 2000 degrees uh it'd be like 2000 degrees for an hour eventually the leather would dry out and crumble but no there would be that shoe would be very apparent if it had been in a wheelbarrow okay all right did was her other shoe collected was that collected as evidence i'm sure we'll get yeah it was and i do want to point out too valeria in the youtube chat says you're correct about what you remember okay. and, and i don't remember it right off the top of my head right now but okay uh yeah she says that that's accurate great next steps Jill says, could we contact a friend of Chuck's or maybe a girlfriend to see if they know why Becky came to live with him? Maybe he shared this information with them. Maybe it's in that interview. I don't know. I'm really, really, really hoping that I'm somehow able to connect with Tiffany Teasdale, her her sister. I don't know that that's the case. I don't know. I don't, like I said, I don't know if the stuff, that the messages I've sent have even gotten through. But it seems like she would be one of the best sources because she, and, and my understanding is that she believes they got the right people. But. You know, she obviously knows what was going on with Chuck. She knows what was going on with Becky. You know, Ron. She didn't. She was older, so she didn't know any of. You know, she 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 doesn't have the all these conflicts that a lot of people have with Robert and Javier and all these friends because she was. You know, she was. I think thirty one years old when this happened. She was. She was older, and she's not Ron's daughter. She doesn't. So she doesn't have that like connection to Ron. And there's just there's a, there's a. I think she would be. A good objective source mm-hmm. if I'm ever able to connect with connect with her. Okay. So I'm certainly going to continue trying that. Okay. Uh, there's so much great stuff happening in the YouTube chat about the sort of what happened. How did the shoe and the sock get where they were? How could she have run to the wheelbarrow? To the point where I've just taken a bunch of screenshots. And maybe we can yeah. get further into the idea of sort of how everything happened um, in a yeah. later episode. Yeah, because keep in mind next week's follow up. So that, again, this week's going to be a bonus. That's just our discussion about um, um, John Benet Ramsey. So next week's follow up, we have we don't have more information about this case to add on to, so we can answer a lot more questions oh, again next love week. I know we're great point. We're super long. Great point. Even though I also know that a bunch of people are going to have thoughts on John Benet, so it's going to be a busy right. follow up because we're we'll talking about two totally separate cases. Yeah. Rebecca says you mentioned another trip to SoCal. Is there a possibility of doing a meetup and checking out the crime scene in person? Uh, for sure, meetup. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but again, I don't, I don't have that trip planned. So my schedule finally settles down middle of may so we've had you know we had our assignment in mexico we've had live shows we've had um now we're going to crime con uh i actually have a a trip to montana in the middle of may so like there's a there's it just so happened in like a eight week period i've got like four trips that are finally ending you know in about three weeks from now then everything will settle down um so then i want to try to probably i'm hoping maybe sometime in june to make a trip perfect weather for the desert 117 degrees It's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be fabulous. But also we have in on June 23rd, Zach and I are going to West Memphis for that hearing too. So there's, there's a lot. But yeah, when I go to uh, to SoCal next time, there we'll, I will for sure put something together. I didn't before because I didn't want you all to know what I was doing or where I was at. Yeah. Okay, great. We'll talk about that further. Uh, last question from Marie. 
who you have voted best observation of the week, which is saying a lot because I feel like we've seen some golden observations in this conversation already. This was, before you read it, this was the biggest duh moment (laughs) ever. I like, she wrote that. I'm like, how the, how did none of us, how did none of us think of this? Uh, So go ahead and read read your question. Good work, good work, good work. Uh, Marie, did I miss something in Becky's car? Where is the cell phone and her handbag, purse, wallet? Who leaves home without those? And she couldn't have made a cell call to work without a cell phone. Yeah. So I think all of us could maybe feel a little bit silly. And maybe there's ex- explanations for this because another. I was just talking to someone else uh, before we got on the air today, too, uh, that had messaged me about something else. And she was like, yeah, and like, where were her keys? So – if the uh, if the theory, which based on the Denny's manager's testimony that she called and said, hey, I forgot my shirt. Do you want me to go back up and get it or should I just come in? You know, well, she left and must have came back to the house. If she did that, when she got back to the house to quickly run in and grab a shirt, she took her keys, her cell phone. We don't know if she carried a purse, but there had to be some kind of wallet of some, you know, driver's license, credit cards, cash. She gathered all that up and took it inside with her to quickly run in and get a shirt. I don't think so. Yeah. I really I, – I, I don't think that's the case. Um, so like while we're trying to figure out which shoes she would have worn to work and all these different things, there's just like this huge glaring um, – if someone runs in to get stuff, they probably wouldn't – they wouldn't have taken that stuff with them and it's not in the car – Ipso facto, if that's what that means, I'm not sure what that means, but people say it. <laughs> that she very likely just hadn't left for work yet. But I that could also just to just to play this side, that could also say that she didn't do that, that she was at the house and went on a hike because everything is in the house. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, I thought you were leading to the fact that someone would have taken it. No, no. I mean that's a possibility. Okay. But there's no indication that 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 ha- I mean, there's plenty okay. of other stuff left behind. No, no, no. The, what I'm getting at is, I think you know whether it was on a hike or was just home, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I don't think she had left the house. Right. That that and I hadn't really thought about it. So you said that. Yeah, there is a possibility that we're going the opposite directions now. There is a possibility that maybe the killer, for some reason, grabbed that stuff. Mm-hmm. Seems, seems like far-fetched. a weird seems countermeasure. Far-fetched. You're burning everything else, but you're taking something that could be tracked to you. No way. Yeah. Right, unless they threw it in the house. Yeah, like like the phone, make, like maybe if they're like, oh, I don't want them to see her phone records and they were too dumb to know that they could yeah, still I mean, find them anyway. Yeah, I mean, if they pulled anyway. it from the car and put it in the house to then burn it, I guess. I don't know. That but seems... then why the wallet? Why yeah. the keys? Yeah, like no, no. none of that stuff adds up. No, no, it sure doesn't sound like she had left yet. I don't think so. And I was leaning that way already because of the fact of, you know, she's wearing jeans, even though people have said that a lot of times they'll just, you know, they would go to work in jeans and change pants when they get there. But yeah. So anyway, great, great, great catch. Uh, and maybe I'm I'm nuts here, but most people like I feel like a lot of people's minds are probably blown right now about you know didn't think of, didn't think of that. Great catch, great work, and great work from everyone this week. And I, I, honestly, I'm so impressed with the work you guys have got. You guys are anytime you guys are making me look foolish because you're doing such a great job. That's exactly what I'm. What I'm looking That's for. One of the things we love about you is that you're <laughs> totally willing to look like a fool. We love you right. for it. I've gotten good at it over the years. <laughs> um, 
But this was one of those, you know, it was a weird schedule last week. And I and said, I've always, Mike always told me I'm way too transparent with people, but it was just, you know, new editor last week. And again, Kelly did an amazing job, but there's a lot of training stuff that was going on with that sure. scheduling. And it ends up one o'clock in the morning. And I, and I was, you know, there was things I wanted to break down further. And I was just, I just kind of had this moment that it's like, you know what? Our audience is very good at investigating. So instead of me talking through what I think happened, I'm just going to throw it out there and let you guys figure it out. And man, you did a, you did a fantastic job. Really appreciate all of it. And, uh, I know that I told Janet that'd be the last question. So I know that we're done, uh, for the day. So, uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, end this thing. Thank you guys again so much for all of your, your love and support and, and all of the hard work and engagement you're doing. I'm super excited about it. I hopefully get to get to hang out with and have drinks and chat with a bunch of you guys at CrimeCon this weekend. Again, this Sunday's episode is going to be a bonus. It'll be our live discussion with me and the captain. And Kelly's there, too, but we barely let her talk during this part of the discussion. But she's in there. Uh, uh, our editor, Kelly Barron's Brink of True Crime IRL, is in there. Uh, so that's going to be the bonus episode on Sunday. We'll be back to business as usual uh, for next week's follow-up, where we'll catch more of these questions. Great. And with that being said, thank you, guys. You can also always check out the JV Club. <laughs> JB's other podcast if you're looking for something to listen to this week uh, thanks Zach thanks Janet thanks all of you guys we'll see you next week thanks everybody bye guys NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com Our follow-up logo was created by me and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. 
for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. And uh, the... What else was there? <laughs> that, that was it. The, the, the truck... Oh yeah, yeah. We covered everything from uh, the. We covered everything from the fire department response to the scene. <sighs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Do 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 do. How you doing, guys? And do 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 a do 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 a do 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 doing good. I'm I'm not doing it. It's your turn. I'm not doing it. Do 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 do. I don't got it. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus, terms apply. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.